Hello one and all and welcome to another episode of The Modern Mind. Today we have four lessons from the Special Forces taken from four separate guests that we've been fortunate enough to have on the show in the past. Starting with Gaz Banford who talks about the characteristics in those who typically pass selection and getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. Simon Jeffries, who talks about his misfire incident in training, releasing the pressure and focusing on the moving average rather than the end result. Lindsay Bruce, who shares with us his experience of selection and his recommendation to break things down into smaller bite-sized chunks rather than focusing on the bigger picture. And finally, we have Dean Stott, who shares with us the lessons that he took away from a career-ending injury and how he refocused into the next chapter of his life. All of those things and more to come, but before we dive into today's episode, a couple of housekeeping requests, if you don't mind. If you do enjoy this episode or an episode previously, please do share it with a friend. Make sure that you hit follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Check us out on YouTube as well as signing up to the mailing list in the show notes down below. As well as that, if you would be so kind as to rate and or review the show, that would be massively appreciated. It helps us reach more exciting guests climb up the charts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc., and just get more visibility, which is a win-win for us all. Before we break down the four lessons from our four Special Forces operators today, it is important to mention the show's sponsors, as without them, there would be no show. First up, we have a new kid on the block, my protein, who I have been an avid user of since my first order in March 2013. And if you have watched the YouTube channel over the years, you'll know that my staple breakfast for a decade now has been 100 grams of oats with frozen raspberries and a scoop of whey protein, and my protein with their wide variety of flavors for the past decade have provided that whey protein. So it's very exciting to now put pen to paper and represent them as an athlete, as well as having them support the podcast. And whether you're into whey protein or other products, you can save yourself some dinero at checkout with the code Fergus. And if you're listening when this episode has gone live, then Impact Week is live, which means that there are enormous discounts site-wide. Alongside their regular whey protein, I'm a huge fan of the Clear Whey and their day-to-day protein bars, flapjacks, protein bites. All of these things are really, really useful, especially when I'm on a calorie-controlled diet, as I am at the moment, trying to just lean down a little bit so that my body composition is more usable, and having access to high-protein snacks is something that's really imperative for me to do that effectively. So do please check out the website, Do use the code FERGUS at checkout if you do, and be fast or be last because Impact Week has some insultingly enticing bargains available. Next up, we have Man Cave, who are without a doubt the UK's most exciting men's grooming business. Based out of the Peak District and sold nationwide, they are 100% recyclable, 100% cruelty-free, and 100% natural, which means that you can have confidence in the quality of the product that you are using to look great, smell great, and feel great, which is the most important thing at the end of the day, is it not? They have everything from weird and wonderful smelling shower gels, to hair product, to black spice body scrub, to beard oil and everything in between. I'm actually about to drive down south to go and spend a couple of days with Man Cave, which I'm very excited to do and would love it if you guys gave their products a go if you haven't yet done so as I've been using them for over a year now and really do swear by them. They are much better than a lot of off-the-shelf supermarket brands and men, if you're listening using a three-in-one shampoo, body wash, conditioner thing, then it's time to step up your game because we're not teenagers anymore and you deserve better. So, if you're looking to capitalise on how much you deserve better, then use the code FC40 at checkout to save yourself 40% off, and please let me know how you get on over social media. Anyway, without any further ado, let's dive into today's episode. 
First up, we have some insight from episode number two of The Modern Mind with Gary Banford, former Sergeant Major of the Special Boat Service turned corporate leadership coach. Gaz talks us through, from his perspective, what it takes to pass selection and, more importantly, the characteristics of those that typically do. You were exploring the characteristics and the ideal traits that you'd be looking for in those that could pass and be drawn into selection to come out the other end as the candidates that we want to be the elite of the elite within the the armed forces. And I know you won't be able to distill it down into bullet points, but the conversations we've had in the past, the overarching theme has been that there isn't an ideal candidate, but there are ideal lessons that need to be learned to get to get a person in the right place to be in the mindset that they need to be to approach selection. And if that makes sense to you, I'm just going to open up the floor for you to develop that a little bit, because it's kind of reaching into conversations we've had in the past as a terribly worded question, but a bit of an angle for, for you to you to broaden on. Yeah. So, so what is it that we're looking for? Is that, is that the question? In, in um, theory? Yeah. So, and it's a, and it's a fantastic question and it's, and it's incredibly complicated in a nutshell if if i could if i could distill it down and i will um i would say people that are prepared to navigate uncertainty so me joining the marines and again this is my story uh, and it's my origin story if you like and um it's useful for people to understand themselves but you know as a volunteer for marines i had no idea what I was letting myself in for. I was prepared to navigate whatever challenges were thrown my way. When I went on to selection, I had not spoken to anybody that had passed. I'd only ever spoken to people that had failed. So I had some idea, but that was massively skewed by their, um, rightly so sort of tail between their legs, um, stories of absolute impossibility of passing the course. So it was pretty warped view of what the selection process was like. And, and I knew, Again, maybe not consciously, but I knew subconsciously I just had to go and find out myself. I was never going to get the answers that I needed and whether I was what they were looking for. So I myself went, was prepared to go into the unknown. And again, again, for context, I think it's important when, when I did that, that was, that was beginning of 2003, back end of 2002 and, um, a long time ago now. And there wasn't an awareness of anything to do with what they did. There was, it was so much more this level of secrecy. Now, you know, I guess some people would be saying, well, in part because of people like me talking a little bit more about it. I mean, I'd, I only ever share the kind of personal, um, the kind of human aspect to it, never really the detail of the organizations, but um, there is a lot more known about the organizations. The internet has just it's out there. There is data out there. There's information you can, at the touch of a button or the type of a key badge, a keypad, you can find out anything you want nowadays within, within some level of detail. And so, you know, I didn't grow up having that access. You know, we, we had the children's Britannica, you know, book of Britannica, you know, that was our resource for getting information. I sound like a real old knob, but there was a lot of information, um, that we weren't, didn't have access to. And we, we had no way nowadays it's different. And so you, people and again i'm the same if i want to know something i just google it and and but navigating that uncertainty going towards something where you don't know what the answers are you've got no idea i think that's really important so that's absolutely a key thing that we're looking for with individuals that are willingness to go into something that's unknown but they trust in themselves that they will not give up and they'll not stop until um, somebody else says that's enough or it's time to switch focus and do something else now and 
um, that that's quite important. Now, I feel really lucky um, with me learning all this and and kind of doing an awful lot of thinking. I'm fascinated by this, Fergus. You know, I've got a I've got an interest in in, in psychology. I've always been fascinated by it, and and so I've always looked through my career through the lens of a bit of psychology and. Um, so I've always been thinking about these things in a little bit more detail. And I was really lucky towards the end of my career, three years, four years before the end, to be invited out to um, Wharton Business School um, to go and visit something called the Mission Critical Team Institute. Um, what on earth is that? Well, Wharton Business School is the world's most successful business school on the basis of what their graduates earn when they leave. Again, that's a separate story to one of measure success, but that's how they measure it. It's viewed as number one in the world. And their Mission Critical Team Institute is a is a, is a a program that's led by a, a great guy called Professor um, Preston Klein um, and a doctor now, actually, uh, Professor Klein, uh, Preston Klein. And he, he runs this mission critical team where mission critical team is defined as groups of teams of people that within 300 seconds or less have problems thrown at them. But if they don't solve them, there's catastrophic uh, uh, issues on the back of that. So like loss of life or, or, you know, huge problems. So organizations like NASA, organizations like special forces, organizations like the FBI, organizations like, um, uh, CIA, all these organizations, really, uh, SEAL Team 6 were there, the Delta were there, all these awesome organizations were there. And I was, little old me was invited out to kind of give my five pence worth as well and to understand what exactly the question that you've asked, what, who is it we're looking for? Is it different? And how do we extrapolate that from people that are volunteered, basically? And, and there's a, there's a ton of things, but some of the common themes within all that is this people for willingness to walk towards the problem. You know, that is an unusual thing for people to want to do more unusual than not that, you know, a, a, a terrific car crash. Most people will watch. Most people won't walk towards the problem. Some people will. And absolutely some people, and that kind of sheepdog mentality, uh, that kind of almost the servant mentality to other people is, 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 one part of that. Um, other things that we see, um, the ability to manage stress. It's like stress is going to come at us, whether we like it or not. Some people can manage it well. They can, you know, take themselves to high levels, but get themselves back down. Um, you know, to be able to find people that can regulate themselves, that know themselves well enough to know how to do that. Um, we can't, we don't have the time, these organizations to teach people all of these um, skills over time. So we've, we've got a brief amount of time to select for them. So certainly that resilience is another thing that these people have, have in abundance where they, they are going to get knocked down. They are going to be faced with incredibly impossible challenges that they can just go at, bite off as big a chunk as they can, learn they've not got the skills to do what they need to do to maybe go seek more other people's advice or learn more about themselves um, to prepare themselves better and then to come back and re-attack the problem again. This resilience is is one of those things that we just see time and time again. So there's a there's a ton of things that actually these people have. Um, but there's some common themes. I, I think one of the things that sums it up best for me is that sheepdog mentality, almost viewing yourself in in kind of a servant uh, role, but almost uh, a protector, um, a guardian, almost. That's that's a that's a common thing. Whether you're in NASA 
and what what you know what drives people to go to space i mean really there's there's we know there's not a lot out there but it's this belief that well actually one day we may need to get this human race off to a different planet because um, we could all be it by an asteroid, I guess. I know this is some astronauts motivating factors and, um, and that's a servant mentality. You're not doing it for us. You're doing it for the, the greater good of the human race. And again, that intrinsically motive, intrinsic motivation to do things for um, a greater good is, is another kind of common theme. A lot of it's almost surprisingly simple, isn't it? In that you, you just need the, the person who possesses those traits for them to be developed because ultimately you don't go into the organization as the refined finished product. You just need to to hit the minimum entry point, and then that malleability is is the journey. And I know you're you're a huge fan of talking about that concept, the journey, the process. But social media is rife with talking about getting yourself comfortable being uncomfortable, and it's something that you and I have discussed. It's something that I know we both discuss publicly ourselves. But I think what the past twelve months or so has taught us is that there's almost a second layer to that where. We need to get comfortable being uncomfortable on someone else's terms. And I think that's that's what you've described there, where a problem pre presents itself that you haven't manufactured, that you then need to have the willingness to walk towards and tackle head on. Whereas there's lots of things that we can do in our day-to-day -day lives that build up that resilience you've touched on, because it's definitely something that can go dormant or reduce over time. But I think there's there's lots of merits in in trying to embrace the situations that get thrown us thrown at us that we we can't control and that we we didn't necessarily prepare for, or didn't necessarily volunteer for. And I think that to to bring it back to a general a general application, what what do you think the biggest mistakes that are made? in this day and age by whether it's in leadership, whether it's as individuals that prevent people from finding the best version of their own performance within their day-to-day -day lives. Cause I know you've worked with organizations that have a lot of individuals that lead a lot of individuals need to perform. And are there any themes that run throughout that where people are presenting themselves as the biggest obstacle? Yeah. So you, you mentioned uncomfortable being sorry, comfortable being uncomfortable. And it's, it's such a, it's such a commonly thrown around, statement now and it's something that people strive to, to to get and they go and search for that uncomfortableness rightly so you know we, we need our lives are pretty simple and most people's lives are pretty simple and, and easy nowadays way too easy and you know to get yourself uncomfortable uh, for a lot of people is having to make a meal now versus versus kind of just sticking something in the microwave right and so you know there's lots of there's lots of ways that we can seek uncomfortable and, and we need to push it we need to really get uncomfortable and what the issue is that people they 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 go looking for this but then when things become uncomfortable they don't recognize that this is what they were seeking and then they they hate it they hate being uncomfortable and they quickly try and extract themselves from that problem whereas you know the the beauty and being self-aware is knowing that that's what you went for you actually you're in the in the moment you're present and you're going, well, actually this difficult period, that, that horrible feeling in my stomach, that this isn't going to end, that, that I've messed up, that this is not going to go well. That's the point I've got to keep walking forwards. And, you know, that's where people need to recognize that feeling that you're looking for. Um, sorry, that uncomfortableness that you're looking for is that feeling. And so when you're in it, just to keep pushing through that is, 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 is where we should be, uh, trying to get to really. 
Um, but what what is it that kind of the modern modern person? Again, I, I'm I'm 42, so I, I kind of feel again in many ways quite blessed that I've seen this transition and and still I would say young enough to understand the ins and outs of social media and the the benefits etc of it and and the pitfalls. Um, and again, I've I've got enough grey hairs to have some wisdom and thought on this too. And and I think the biggest problem there um, with modern society. I'm guilty of it too, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm not. Is this the ease with which we can compare ourselves to others? And what we've got now at a time never in our human history, you know, in the millennium, for as long as humans have been on this earth, we've never had it like we have now. Where we can get at any moment that we choose, we can get a lens into people's lives at the very top of their game. So they might be the, the funniest, they might be the most creative, they might be the fittest, the strongest, um, you know, they might be the most beautiful. All these, these incredibly, I don't like the word talented, but these incredibly high achieving people at the very top of their game, we can choose when we want to go and look and pry into their lives. And they market themselves very well and very rightly so, you know, they're, they're, they're learning things and doing things that we should all try and understand um, if we want similar. But the problem and the consequence of that is we've not seen their journey. We never get to see their journey. And again, it reminds me, um, I gave a talk to, like I mentioned earlier, uh, to the England football coaches um, who are doing great things at the minute. And I was invited down to talk about this word resilience. They were doing a whole day, the England football coaches were doing a whole day on what the word resilience meant. So let's not, let's not make out that it's a real easy thing to understand. And I, I told this story of being stood on the tail ramp of, a, of an aircraft about to parachute uh, maybe into a hostage rescue situation at night with a team of people behind me and the feeling that you can have in that moment and the way you, your mind can go off and think catastrophize about the worst things that could happen and you have to get it back to yourself and you have to be present you have to you know there's all these coping strategies and we spoke about all these things and afterwards, one of the coaches came up to me, a famous coach, came up to me and says, Gaz, I know you said that it's the same as taking a penalty in a, in a World Cup final, that performance under pressure. He said, but it's not really, is it? Because the risk that you're taking could result in this. You know, you've got the teams and, you know, you're thousands of miles away from any sort of help and all these things that he was listing off. But what he, because I'd opened up my world to him where he was hearing these stories of me at the very top of my game, probably the, the, the finite point that I'd had in my career, where... I wasn't opening the door to the, the thousands of days of practice up to that very point where I was the person comfortable to look around my, my team and go, no, if, if, if not me, then who, you know? Um, so no, I am the right person and to have the confidence, the authenticity go right the way back to my leadership point to be the authentic leader, to be at the front and go, I, I'm the person to be stood here and, and go and go and do this. And I, I, you, we often don't look at the steps now that people take towards getting to where they're at. We just dive straight in it. You know, like Kevin Hart, one of the funniest men on the planet on a daily basis, you can see what he's up to. And he makes you think he's such, he's so successful. I and mean, you could, you know, as an up and coming comedian, which I'm not, um, you know, you could feel really bad about yourself checking what he's doing every single day. I'm never going to make it to that. And that's the problem. Now we've just got this, periscope if that, or microscope even into people's lives and at the very top of their game and we get no context but to their struggle we get no context to the years that they spent uncomfortable uh, 
being sorry yeah uncomfortable and we just don't see that anymore and we need to we need to remind ourselves of that and we need to listen to these people and we need to listen to these people's tell the true story uh, of the narrative of just how hard they've worked to get there because that's that's the common theme this um this self-discipline to keep working hard at what it is that you're doing is this 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 golden nugget of information that people often kind of oversee or overlook and I think that's one of the biggest issues. Next up, we hear from Simon Jeffries, former SBS, who talks us through the unfortunate circumstances surrounding a misfire in training and how the moving average, from his perspective, is more important than the end result. What moment of your military career rewired your current mindset the most? Oh, that's an interesting. I've never. That is a very good question. I will tell you one that stands out as an epiphany moment, which I've shared before, and I think has got a tangible takeaway from it. And that is, I, so, you know, brief background, I was Royal Marines, and then I went on selection for special forces. So selection process, six months, um, it's the same SBS, SAS, it's the same selection process. Everyone knows about the kind of, you know, walking around Wales with a heavy weight on your back. Um, and there's lessons within that we can dig into afterwards. But after that phase, you have two weeks where you essentially do some work on the ranges to get familiar with the, the the weapons you're going to be using, the rifles, and then you deploy to the jungle. On that two-week phase in between, on one of those um, range exercises, what you're predominantly doing is what we call break contact drills. So scenario is you're a small patrol, and as you're patrolling, enemy contacts you, um, ambushes you, and you have to extract out of that position um, using kind of cover and manoeuvre. Yeah, good example, watch the film Heat. It's probably got the best, one of the best scenes in that for it. So during that, I was firing my weapon rifle down range, and I turned my head to shout to a guy across from me to tell him to move. And as I did, as I turned my head, I squeezed off a round. So although my weapon was pointing down range and technically it's safe, that's still a safety violation because my eye was not through the rifle sight. And you can get two of those violations um, on selection and then you're off. So that was basically my one life gone. And you kind of go and you to the head instructor and he just gives you the, you know, you've had this warning, so you're officially notified. And as I was leaving his office and I was walking back over to the accommodation, I was kind of going over this in my head. And I realized in that moment that I'd been putting so much pressure on myself to be perfect and sort of concentrating on the end result of passing or failing that I was actually performing worse. You know, that mistake that I'd made, I'd never made that in my entire career beforehand, but it was almost this this pressure I'd, I'd taken myself past optimum performance to it having a detrimental effect. And I realized that I just needed to let go of that because I had no control. Obsessing over the end result was not helping me. And actually all I needed to do was concentrate on each day or each moment and just be the best I could, put all my effort into that and the result would take care of itself. At the end of it, I was either going to be good enough or not. And I just let go of that pressure. And it was almost like a physical weight lifting. And from that point onwards, A, the experience was a much more positive one. It was more, I say enjoyable loosely, like it's obviously not a very enjoyable experience selection, but also it made it much more likely 
to get the result that I wanted, which was to pass, and that was the result I ended up with. So that releasing of that pressure to be perfect made a huge difference. And it's something that I see a lot with the coaching that we do. We see one of the most common sort of behavior cycles that we see, what we call boom and bust. And that is someone decides they want to make a change. So a pain point gets acute enough that they want to change something. You know, health and fitness is the, is the classic one, losing weight or getting fitter. And so they decide, right, that's it. I'm going to follow, I'm going to get this perfect training plan or this perfect diet. And in eight weeks, I'm going to weigh this much or I'm going to be able to run this fast, whatever it is. And they follow that plan perfectly for a week, maybe, maybe two weeks. And then they get a last minute deadline from work or their kid gets sick or whatever it is. And they miss a meal or they miss a training session. And so the next time that they're due to take an action, that thought process creeps in of, ah, you've already spoiled the perfect run. So that means you're not going to get that perfect result. So what's the point? And so you miss the next one and the next one. And you basically just throw it all out the window. You fall into an all or nothing mindset. You bend the whole thing and you're back at square one. And people just live in these boom bust cycles of trying to make these big perfect changes and they're rebounding back to where they are. As opposed to the, the ethos that we embed with everyone we work with is something we call moving average. And the moving average is the idea that you do not need perfection to make progress. All you need is consistency. Like everyone has bad days. Everyone misses workouts and training sessions. But if you switch from that all-in-mathic mindset to, okay, I can't do an hour workout, but I can do a 15-minute walk. Well, that still ties into my moving average. And all you need is your moving average to just, just be in the positive, just always edging into the positive. And if you do that and get rid of this timeline obsession as well and see it as a lifestyle change and becoming that type of person as opposed to just getting an end result... It's game changing. When people make that shift, the results they get are so much easier to achieve. And they, ironically, they get them far quicker as well. Whoop is the world's leading lifestyle tracker for good reason. And that's because it's on your wrist 24-7, even when it's charging. It's giving you access to loads of data on sleep, recovery and strain for you to make more informed decisions on your day-to-day -day lifestyle, day-to-day -day existence and the behavior patterns that lead to you being the best version of yourself. It's important to mention that it's not gospel. It gives you the data and information to work from and take action from. And ultimately, you need to play around with what works best for you, what time going to bed, what time going up, whether you eat too late at night, what your breathing is like in a different bed when you're traveling, all of these things that you can track and monitor with Whoop. But it's up to you to look at the information within a broader ecosystem of considerations at your personal end. I've been using my Whoop for just over a year now, and I mainly use it to make better decisions around sleep, alcohol, and workload so that I can be keeping track of how I'm feeling on a day-to-day -day basis and having the data to reinforce it. I'm a big fan of the journal feature because it allows me to, one, sort of share my personal thoughts day-to-day -day and have it backed up and stored over a long period of time, but two, allows me to track the more psychological side of how I'm feeling on a day-to-day -day basis. As well as that, the haptic alarm waking me up first thing in the morning I think is brilliant because it means that it's up to me when I pick up my phone to see that incoming flurry of emails and messages that sets me in a spiral first thing in the morning. So having an alarm on your wrist is one of many features that makes Whoop the world's leading lifestyle tracker and you can give it a go with 30 days, no risk, and your first month free by using the link in the description down below. So please do and let me know how you get on. 
Next up, we hear from Lindsay Bruce, episode number 22, former Special Air Service and a Scottish lad through and through. He talks us through his experience with selection and how focusing on breaking things down into smaller chunks rather than getting overwhelmed by the bigger picture was a tactic that helped him get through it. Real challenge from it psychologically and where you you sort of separate, for want of a better phrase, the men from the boys is is waking up each morning thinking, I've got to do this again. I've got to do this again. Oh, do I want to do this again? My hips are hurting. What was your experience like with that? It's like in business, if you have a good week making money, how many weeks can you do that for in a row and keep doing this, having the same performance? Because you all know like in business, so people that are watching this that are in the business world, they'll be tuned into the fact that it's the basic things done repeatedly well that really make the difference. Not something new and shiny every single day to try. You know, it's consistent basics. That takes patience, that takes grit, it takes determination. And with selection, it was the simple fact of waking up in the morning, knowing what's to come, or worse, knowing you've got to do the, the, the shit that made you really painful yesterday, you're going to have to do that again and then some today. And then tomorrow you're going to have to do it again. And it's stacking and day on day on day on day, and isn't it? The weight's only getting heavier. The distances are only getting longer. The terrain's potentially getting worse. Um, and and that, that takes a lot of start and stop mentality of bookending that day and going, right, it's, that's done, it's in the past. Fuck that off. And then worry about the day that you're on one day at a time. So one of the one of the things is to not overwhelm yourself and think about two weeks down the line. You know, be on week one and think of an endurance march, which is 65Ks and going, Oh my God, we only did like 14 Ks today as a group. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm tired. So 65 Ks in three weeks from now or four weeks from now, how am I going to, how am I going to do, you know, I'm going to be by myself. It's a long distance. It's heavier weight. The, the fact of the matter is only need, all you need to do is, is chunk everything down a bit like goal setting. So don't think about the big picture all the time to, and then overwhelm yourself. Just go today. I've got to get up and I've got to make sure I'm prepped to do this. And at the end of that day, I'm going to be done. I'm going to be sleeping. I'm going to be eating. I'm going to be, bookending that day and the next day just think about that day and then when you're out in the hills it's one step at a time it's a bit like you know you probably heard people saying i think david goggins has even said this type of type of uh, thing where they go you know i only have to get from this point to that point then i'll think about the next point when i get there and it's true it's a bit like being in a treadmill you know you just go right however you can psychologically deal with it the best whatever fits your personality the most you've probably done a million versions of this almost, right? So you either go, I'm thinking about it a minute at a time or every two minutes. You can break it down however you want. Um, and, and that's what I would say is the difference is that just keep getting up, keep showing up every single day when it's dark, when it's cold, when you're tired, when your feet have got blisters and going again. So lads, lads dropping around you like flies, directing staff, giving you more and more to take on, fatigue's increasing, yeah. pain's increasing, questions about yourself are increasing. How did you deal with those lads dropping around you? What did that do for you psychologically? Did it put a fire up your arse or did it did it weigh you down? Yeah, it's it's the best thing ever. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I I don't really understand. And this isn't you know wanting people to fail, but at the end of the day, you you know it's a competitive. You know they have to lose numbers. They can't just take on every single person that, that attends SES selection. They can't take on fifty percent of that. There is essentially a capacity of badged troops at the end. So 
if they have 250 people going the hills and miraculously all those people are just getting through it they don't have the capacity to take 250 people to the jungle logistically or otherwise so they have to lose people right and and as history would prove that it's always happened you know that's just been the, the pattern uh, but when people start to drop around you it's you know when you're part of a large group of 250 people day one going oh my god am i out of my depth psyching yourself out and you know getting in your own head and then all of a sudden you're still there when there's the there's a hundred people there that tells you that tells yourself that well if i'm in the hundred that's still here and there's 150 people not here something i've been doing is more than what they did so the the the, the, the narrower that that channel is in and the less the numbers become you almost you gain energy from that because you're still in the mix you're still in the fight and that can only ever be a good thing so psychologically it's actually a really good good thing for the mind and, and i alluded to that on on the human 24 podcast as well when i was on it about the the one day that i really remember when i was having the shittest day ever and someone who i perceivably thought was you know way more advanced and more experienced and, and bigger and stronger than i was just just basically wrapped his tits in front of me right in front of me and i was like and suddenly I was just like, it was like a rock up your ass, you know, because that, that wasn't in my mind. That was, I wasn't contemplating that. So I'm going, well, I must be mentally stronger than he is because he's just done something that I've not even contemplated. For clarity, wrapping so rap, his tits, meaning pulling out voluntary withdrawal. Yeah, actually. And, and, you know, voluntary withdrawal is like something that is completely... An individual thing. People have got the reasons, and I think when people do that, again, it's not you put a bigger consequence in the fact that you know would he have done it if someone held a gun to his kid's head? Then likely not. But you either want it or you don't want it, and more it means to you, then the more reason you have to keep going. Next up, we have an extract from episode number sixteen with Dean Stott, who talks us through the circumstances surrounding a career-ending injury and how he then reframed that into the next chapter of his life. Two weeks before you were due to finish, you had a career-ending injury in your knee, am I right, on one of the jumps that you had? Yeah, so this was when I was, actually when I passed the Special Forces and I was in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. so I I, I passed uh, selection and, you know, for me, I joined at the busiest time in UK SF history. And, you know, it was the height of the war on terror, you know, we're in Afghanistan, we're in Iraq, we were rescuing hostages off the east coast of Africa. I was literally doing everything that we you signed up to do in such a short period of time as well. It wasn't like spread out over 10, 15 years. It was within a very condensed period of time. And so for me, it's like these children play Call of Duty. That was our lifestyle day in, day out. And enjoyed every day I went into work. And I, you're at your pinnacle of your career. You know, I never looked... You know, for me, I was a lifer. I was I was in the military till till till, the, till as long as I I, I could uh, do my job. And we were about to go on another uh, tour to Afghanistan. I was doing pre-deployment training out in Oman, and we're doing what's a, a hey ho jump, high altitude, high opening jump. So you exit the aircraft at fifteen thousand feet, the parachute opens straight away, and you travel towards the target area. And that can be anything up to thirty minutes in the air or forty kilometers. Um, to the area I'd done this jump you know I've done hundreds of these jumps and this was like the third jump of the day but this time when I exited 
there was something something that wasn't right. And straight away, I looked up and my leg was caught in the line above my head. The problem I had is if I couldn't clear my leg in time, the parachute was going to open and potentially pull my leg open, uh, leg off. I couldn't clear it in time. The parachute went taut, pulled my leg up over my head to the right. But thankfully, my ankle cleared from the line and uh, my leg did free. But straight away with the pain, I knew there was a problem. I was vomiting because of the pain was so severe. And at 15,000 feet, you're on the limits of oxygen. So I was also drifting in and out of consciousness. No one in the team was aware there was a problem. Like, and you can't really cover over the radio and say, oh, I've got a sore leg because there's nothing there anyone can do about it. So you just need to, you need to land it. So my first concern was how was I going to land it? If I didn't land it correctly, I could actually damage my, my good leg as well. But I, I landed it one-legged. It was a great landing. But the damage sustained, you know, as you've rightly touched on there, ended my career. I tore my ACL, my MCL, my lateral meniscus within my knee my hamstring, my calf, and my quadricep as well. So all the supporting muscles as so well. The full house, isn't it, really, when you think of it like that? It's... Yeah, that was it. And and for me, it wasn't so much the injury. It was the fact that my friends were going off to Afghanistan. They were going on one plane, and then I was going on another plane. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of synergies with professional sports athletes and special forces you know you you spent your career building yourself up to be the best you can be within that arena um competing at the highest level and you get an injury and your friends go off to the ashes or your friends go off on the lions tour however you're going that way to get physio and that's, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of synergies in that um but for me yeah that was the hardest thing is that i couldn't go and support my friends in afghanistan again well, that's why I asked about the injury, because it's it's interesting with that perspective, how you then look back on the career, which was so condensed and so basically what you signed up to do and what I can imagine some different generations of UKSF might have wished they could have had the, the real intensity that you did. So looking back on your career when you were faced with that injury, was it one that you felt had been... Had you, had you, had you fully scratched the itch or had it been something that, you, that was more on the table for you? Um... I had fully scratched the itch. You know, I'd got to where I wanted to be. You know, a lot of my friends do say, be careful what you wish for. You know, when we're like, oh, you want to go back out to Afghan on tour? It's like, there was a friend of mine actually who was on that um, that tour and he he was due, he wanted to get out of the military. He said, I'm going to do one more tour. That was the end of his career. He got killed in Afghanistan. So it's almost like, yes, I'd scratched the itch, uh, but you are playing a, a lottery game. Um, you know, that could have been my my last tour as well. But for me, it was, you know, be careful what you wish for. Things happen for a reason as well. You know, I, I, you can't control the uncontrollables. What happened, happened. And there's nothing I can do uh, beyond that. It's just like now you've just got to keep looking, looking forward. It's probably not the direction you were looking originally but still keep looking forward. There's other options uh, to you. But I think the, the more frustrating thing for me was um, the fact that I thought I could get fit and get back out there and, and assist the lads. But it was a big spiral of medical issues within within the military. They lost my medical documents and, and it took me 44 weeks to get operated on, which should normally you know, only take a matter of weeks. And so because of that, that was where my my sort of, Mentally, I was I was I was suffering, but physically as well. My injured leg now was like a few kilos light, a couple of kilos lighter than my my good leg. So um, 
And I think that was, for me personally, that was what was hard to, to grasp, is the fact that you've gone from being the best of the best and then all of a sudden you're on the, you're on a you're on a pile of paper and the fact that they, they couldn't even get me operated on within 44 weeks was 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 annoying and then you become a civilian which is a difficult transition at the best of times but it's one that in a operational capacity you live and breathe admin prep but you didn't necessarily have have the mental prep that you would have had did you know you're about to become a civilian in that capacity so that must have been a real challenge yeah, I think again that there's a that transition, that that sort of synergy with professional sports people, and not just professional sports people, anyone who works in a team. You, you've gone from working in a tight knit unit, having a role, having a purpose, to like where do I now fit in society? I didn't know where where I fit or what I was going to do. I also, as you touched on, you know, normally if you're leaving the military, you you sort of make that you have a lead up time to it. I didn't have that period, that time to prep. It was sort of like, no, you're now out the door. So, um, and without sounding like Liam Neeson, you know, people with our skill sets, natural progression is the private security industry. And, um, but the great thing about the military, they are like your mother or your father, they clove you, they feed you, they pay you on time. You know, I didn't know what council tax ban will pay or what heating. Now they take those distractions away from you so you can concentrate on your job. Thankfully for me, my wife sort of replaced the military she's very good at that she's an entrepreneur she you know she deals with all that sort of admin stuff in the background that i'd never had to deal with before because the military sort of picked that up for me um and she set up our our first security company on a blackberry watching eastenders you know for me it's like whether i tick the right boxes within company's house so you you hear stories of people transitioning either quite smooth or turbulent now, thankfully for me mine was quite smooth because my wife sort of picked up where the military dropped me off. You know, she took all, all that responsibility so I can just concentrate on on work. Um, but to add to the pressure, my wife was 10 months pregnant when I left the military as well. I didn't know if there was going to be any work there. How was I going to support the family? So mentally, there was a lot of lot of things going on up here as well, still trying to deal with the injury. The fact that I, I couldn't even run 100 metres now either without my knee blowing up. It's tough, isn't it? It's tough when it sounds like so much happened all at once and with a kid on the way. Was it child number one as well? Child number one, yeah, that's it, yeah. So um, quite the uh, quite the synergy of, oh shit, going on, I can imagine at that point. But you, you, you immediately settled into, as, as, a, lot, as a lot you do, is, is private security. Was there, was there anything else you considered or was it the, the only direction you want to go in because it was still operational? It was still operational for me, you know, still itched that scratch. I, I, again, because I didn't really have time to... To, to think, it was like, well, what is the easiest way or quickest way to get money in and, and support my family? You know, then we can sort of look look further down the line. A lot of the guys were doing um, security in Afghanistan and Iraq. I didn't want to go Afghan and Iraq. I spoke to a friend of mine. And he said, actually, the best money is in corporate protection, uh, whether it's close protection or consulting and things like that. So, you know, and that's, that's what you find about the security industry. It's not risk reward ratio balanced, you know. So the guys that are in Afghan and Iraq, they'd be on the 50% of what I'd be on at the London Olympics or Brazil World Cup or taking the UAE Royal Family Super Yacht, you know. So I was that less risk, more reward. So I sort of switched towards that direction. But my first task was um, within 48 hours of leaving the military, um, it was the Arab Spring in the Middle East, um, especially North Africa. And I was in Libya helping set up the 
DFID project, which is part of the British Embassy in Benghazi. But um, a lot of the guys I used to work with uh, had their own sort of um, maritime security companies and, and were doing very well off the east coast of Africa and because Somalia piracy was at its peak. But I didn't want to sort of be competing with these guys. You know, I wanted to find my own niche within the industry. So when I was out in, in Libya, I soon identified the Libyans didn't want Libya being another Afghan and Iraq when uh, Gaddafi had fallen, but also these big private security companies, I call them the big five, were charging seven-figure sums for crisis management and evacuation plans. But actually, when you scrape the surface, there was nothing in place. So I came home, my wife gave birth to Molly, and I said, oh, I think I have an idea regards a niche in the industry, and I sort of explained it to her. So she said, fine. So I went back into Libya, <clears throat> took a, all, a lot of our life savings out, and there was a huge proliferation of weapons at the time. So took advantage of that. I bought 30 weapons off the black market and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt, along with comms kit and money and just designed my own evacuation plans. We lived in Aberdeen um, when I left Paul. My wife's from Aberdeen. So Aberdeen's the oil and gas capital of Europe. So there's a lot of oil and gas companies there who are in Libya as well. And I just sold this concept to them and, and just sat on it. So that was where I was sort of uh, started my niche. Um, I had the luck Actually, my wife wasn't too concerned about regular income. So I was doing ad hoc work. So every time I get a phone call, it was a different job. It was a different country. So in a short period of time, actually, from leaving the military, I, I, was, I was going to countries that I'd never been to before. I was understanding more about the security industry. And each task was unique and different. You know, you know I'll give you an example. Like one phone call would be, you know, can I train the uh, Kurdish Special Forces in Erbil to fight ISIS? So spent six weeks there. Next phone call, can you take the UA Royal Family Supiot from Barcelona and Maldives? No, next one, big court case in Cape Town. So I was literally learning more about the industry in, in a short period of time. The, in 2012, the, when the American ambassador got killed in Benghazi, uh, I just finished the London Olympics and I was in Benghazi that evening and I got a phone call if I could evacuate eight German engineers from Benghazi to Tripoli, which I did through safe houses I had in the desert. And because of the success of that, two years later, I was at Brazil covering the World Cup and there was now the Tripoli War, it's a civil war between the militias and the government. And I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy saying, look, your name keeps coming up. Um, we need assistance. Um, so I flew back in, helped them, and uh, single-handedly evacuated the Canadian Embassy, 18 military and four diplomats from Tripoli to Tunis. Sounds very sexy in Hollywood and things like that, but I've never had to dig up any weapons or anything like that. It was understanding the demographics, the politics, and the tribal influences. So that's where I sort of, that's my niche within the industry. I could go to any country, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, on my own, and just get embedded with the locals.